have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 3. So we're kind of continuing in a verse-by-verse study of this great gospel, my favorite of the four gospels, the Gospel of John. And the title for this morning's sermon is Sent to Save, Sent to Save. We're in John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. If you're taking notes, you'll find a little outline in your bulletin. Feel free to use that as we work through this text together this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the most famous verse in the Bible, I believe, John 3.16. And so now we're picking up in verse 17 down to verse 21, sent to save. Here's what John writes, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning, and we thank you for the beauty of music. We thank you for the beauty of praise. We thank you for the beauty of worship. We thank you that we could come together today to think upon the scriptures, to think upon the gospel, to look closely at the person and work of Jesus Christ, to better understand what it means that Christ didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so allow us, God, to understand these verses to apply them in our hearts by the work of your Spirit and to carry them out. All that we do, God, will be carried out in God. And it's in your powerful, matchless name we pray. Amen. Well, some say that God is an angry God. Some say that God is filled with wrath. Some say that the goal of the God of the Bible is to rain down hellfire and brimstone upon all the lost world of sinners. Some might think of the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards in 1741 that led to the Great Awakening in New England, which left a permanent impact on American Protestantism. The title of that sermon, as you may know, was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, Jonathan Edwards said, quote, Unconverted men... Walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. In that sermon, Jonathan Edwards also insisted, quote, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Edwards continues even further into the horrors of judgment. Quote, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And then he describes the wrath of God. Edwards preaches this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, abhors you 
and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Well, no wonder there are some who see God only as an overly zealous God that would desire to wipe away every sinner. God does judge the world and unrepentant sinners. And Jonathan Edwards is right in what he says. The world needs to hear the message of the judgment of God. But this is not all that God does, and this is not all that he is. God is a God who loves, and God is a God who gives, and God is a God who saves. God does not wait with a stick behind his back when we want to come to him. He is not angry at everybody. He is not waiting to first chastise us about all the awful things that we've ever done or said, and then only after an angry lecture somehow still let us into heaven. His arms are open wide. He is ready to receive us, and we can come this morning just as we are. God doesn't come looking for us in order to punish us, ultimately, certainly not. It's clear from John 3.16 that God loves the world. It's clear from this passage that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save sinners out of the world. Adam, what are you saying? Are you disagreeing with Jonathan Edwards? Not for one minute. I think everything that Edwards said was true and right. I love the fact that he preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But if all you see and all you hear is that God is angry at sinners, then you're not hearing all that is in the Bible. And that's why Jonathan Edwards, I believe, is balanced in his theology, as he also wrote Religious Affections to talk about his love for Christ, God's love for the world, God's love for sinners, and how that affection that he gives to repentant children of God hungers and thirsts for more of God. In fact, he writes this in Religious Affections, quote, but that is the nature of true grace and spiritual life, that it opens to a person's view the infinite reason there is that he should be holy to a high degree. And the more grace he has, the more this is open to view, the greatest sense he has of the infinite excellency and glory of the divine being and the infinite dignity of the person of Christ and the boundless length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ for sinners. So Edwards taught that God will send unrepentant sinners to hell, and that is true, but he also taught about the breadth and the depth and the height and the love that Jesus Christ has for sinners. In fact, in Religious Affections, he also says, and as grace increases, the field opens more and more to a distant view until the soul is swallowed up with the vastness of the object and the person is astonished to think how much it becomes him to love this God and this glorious Redeemer that has so loved man. You see, God is the perfect judge, but God also is perfect in love. God is a God who condemns, but he is also a God who saves. God did create a place called hell, but he also created a place called heaven. God does punish all unrepentant sin, but he also pardons every repentant sinner. God's holiness demands his justice, but his mercy demands forgiveness. 
And the purpose of this morning's sermon is to really ask and then answer the question, why did God send his son into the world? If all you ever heard was Jonathan Edwards in that one sermon, then you would think he sent his son into the world to condemn the world. And that's how a lot of people in our culture see God. The reason they don't like Christians and the reason they don't like hellfire and brimstone preachers is because all they think that they hear is the judgment of God. Well, this morning, as we look at verses 17 through 21, I want to make sure that while we affirm that God does judge unrepentant sinners, that's not the primary reason that he sent his son into the world. And so this morning, we're going to examine why God sent his son into the world. It was not to condemn the world, but in order that in Christ, the world might be saved. So our first heading this morning, our first major point, if you're taking notes, it's there in your outline, is the reason why Christ was sent. That's really what this whole introduction is about. And this first point is, again, clarifying the reason why he was sent. And here's your first blank, not for condemnation. Jesus was not primarily sent for condemnation. In fact, look at verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. How much clearer could that be, right? He did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, last time we were together in John 3, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And our outline for that sermon was that God loves God gives and God saves. And let me just quickly highlight a couple of things, seven to be exact, just listen, that I was kind of rethinking about from last time's sermon together found in A.W. Pink's commentary about John 3.16. Just listen, let your heart be encouraged. He emphasizes seven things that shows the love of God. Number one, the tense God loved. What tense is that in? It's in the past tense. It doesn't say that he loves us presently. Though we know he does, other verses talk about his ongoing love for us. But John 3.16 said that God loved, which means it was while we were in our sin, while we were unlovely that he loved us. He didn't just start loving us when we were lovely, but the tense is, is that he determined to love us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Number two, the magnitude of his love. Remember John 3.16 said, for God so loved. And so no one can define the measure of that little word, so. He so loved the world. There are dimensions to the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. Number three, the scope of his love. God so loved the world. God's love was not limited to the narrow boundaries of Palestine, but his love went out beyond Israel into the Gentile nations and, yes, into the whole world. Number four, the nature of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave. Love gives. Real love seeks the highest need and interest of another. Love is unselfish. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love gives. Number five, the sacrificial character of his love. He gave his only son, the monogenes, his only son of his own substance and his own being. God spared not his best. He freely delivered up Christ even to death on a cross. Number six, the design of God's love, that whoever believes in him should not 
perish. Many died in the wilderness from the bites of the serpents, and many of Adam's race will suffer eternal death in the lake of fire. But God purposed to have a people who should never perish. He purposed from eternity past that there would be a people who would believe and have eternal life, that they would never taste separation from God or his judgment, but by their believing, they would come to know God's son. Seven, the benefit of God's love, but have eternal life. This is what God imparts to every one of his own. He gives us life and life everlasting that lasts forever and forever and forever in heaven. And that's why John writes in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So we really can't ever get over John 3.16, can we? We can't ever really get over the love of God to save sinners like you and like me that by believing in Christ, that whoever would come, anybody, anybody in the world that would come to Christ would be saved. And then from John 3.16, we jump into where we are now, John 3.17, and we continue to see the reason why God sent his son. And 17 can't say it any more clear. It was not to judge the world, but to save sinners out of the world. Notice verse 17 said, for God did not send. That word send is the word apostolo. It's where we get the word apostle from, the sent ones from Christ. It means uh, in uh, BDAG, one of the best known uh, lexicons, it means to quote, to dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective. To dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective. And so my question to you this morning is, what was Christ's objective? Why did he come? Did Christ come to condemn the world, or did God send Christ in order to save the world? And over and over, Jesus affirms this idea that he is sent from God. Just as verse 17 says, for God did not send his son. John 5.36 says, uh, Jesus says, the Father has sent me. John 6.29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent me. In fact, he just goes on and on as the living Father sent me. John 6, 57. John 7, 29. I know him, for I come from him, and he has sent me. John 8, 42. I come not of my own accord, but he sent me. And Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 20, 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so we understand from 317 again that God did send Jesus into the world. He dispatched him to accomplish a special and a particular objective. And my question to you really is, you've got to make a decision this morning. Was the objective to condemn the world or was the objective to save the world? And I'm telling you from our text this morning that Christ's objective was to save the lost. So if this verse says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, then you might wonder about other verses and turn with me to John 5, 27, because I'm about to show you what could be confusing. John 5, 27, look at what happens here when Jesus is speaking. He says this, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So I'm trying to make the case God sent Jesus to save the world, not to judge the world. And yet, in John 5, 27, Jesus specifically says that he has given him authority to execute judgment. Or how about looking at John chapter 9, verse 39. John chapter 9, verse 39. Again, Jesus said, John 9, 39, 
for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So which one is it? Does Jesus come to save, or does Jesus come to condemn? Does, was Jesus sent by God to save the world, or was Jesus sent by God to condemn the world? How are we to understand this? Well, I believe that D.A. Carson gets it right when he, in his commentary, writes on this apparent contradiction by saying this, quote, the Son of Man came into an already lost and condemned world. That's really the key. The Son of Man came into an already lost and condemned world. He did not come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world, for that is the nature of the world, in order to save some. That not all of the world will be saved is made perfectly clear by the next verses, verses 18 through 21. But God's purpose in the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation into it. That is why Jesus is later called the Savior of the world. Close quote. So what is it that D.A. Carson is saying? I believe that he's saying that God sent his son primarily not to condemn the world, but to save sinners out of the world. For unrepentant sinners are condemned already. They're already condemned. God did not have to send Jesus into the world and to tell Jesus, I'm sending you into the world to condemn all of the heathen. It never says that in the Bible. The purpose of why he said, I specifically sent you to save people. God sent Jesus Christ into the world to bring salvation to those who would repent and believe. God didn't need to send Jesus into the world to bring condemnation through this, because condemnation already existed through the sinful choices of man. And the sinful consequences of those sinful choices was going to be God's judgment, and it was already at play. And so God didn't introduce Jesus into the world to bring condemnation. It was already happening. Uh, one other comment, uh, maybe John 5.27 and John 9.39, would be that neither one of these verses say that God sent Jesus into the world. In fact, they just simply acknowledge that Jesus is the judge. They don't say he was sent to judge. They just simply acknowledge that he has the right and the authority to execute judgment. He must carry out his character. But the reason that he was sent was for a different reason. Let me, maybe I could say it a different way. God could have judged the world without sending his son. In heaven, on his own, God could have said, guilty as charged. Every person in the world is condemned to hell. He could have judged the world from heaven. But... God could not have saved the world without sending his son. God chose in eternity past in the eternal counsel of God to send his son into the world to save lost sinners. And so God, while he could have technically judged the world without sending his son into the world, he could have not have saved the world without sending his son because that's what he determined to do. And so why did God send Christ? Well, it was not for condemnation. Your next blank gives the answer, but for salvation. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. It was for salvation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Remember, God loves, God gives, and God saves. And so why did he send his son? In order that the world might be saved through him. Now, does this verse mean that every individual in the world is going to come to Christ. When he says that he sent him into the world to save the world, does he mean 
every individual comes to Christ. We'll turn with me to John 12, 46 and 47 to see maybe a little bit more clarity on that question. Did God send Jesus to literally save every individual in the world? John 12, 46 and 47, Jesus says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There we see it again. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. I'm not here to push you down into hell. I'm here to bring you up into heaven. And, And the qualification is, whoever believes, whoever believes, anybody from any background, any ethnicity, any religion, of any walk of life, if you believe Jesus came for you, if you believe in the Son of God, He came to save you, not to judge you, but to save you. And so the light of Christ shines on the world, and I would say that though the light casts shadows, the purpose of the light is to illuminate. You understand that, right? We have lights in this room, lights in your house, and when the light comes, the sun even that God created, the purpose is to light the world. Now, with light comes shadows. There are objects in the way. They block the light. Shadows are a natural byproduct. If you're going to have light somewhere in the world, there's going to be shadows. So we're saying that if Christ is the light, since everybody's not perfect and we're all sinners and there are shadows and there are darkness that we live in, but the purpose was not to come uh, to grab more darkness and to create more darkness. The purpose of Christ was to be light. The purpose of Christ was to illuminate And yes, those who do not believe will hide in the shadows of darkness, but that is not the primary purpose of why God sent his son. You know, one of the greatest reformers, I think that you would agree with me, was Martin Luther, who is attributed to starting the Reformation. And he really struggled with this idea, is God my judge or is God someone who loves me? Is he my judge or does he love me? And as he wrestled through this in his own legalistic bent to try to please God, By his own obedience, he finally came to the end of himself. And here's what he writes. Martin Luther says, If I picture Christ as only a judge, I shall fear him. The result will be that soon I am constrained before him, grow afraid of him, and then hate him. And my heart becomes corrupt and blasphemous. So he's saying, if I only come to God as a judge... I'm not being fair to who he is, and I'm blaspheming God. And if I only come to him as judge, then I'll always be afraid of him, and I will even hate him. And then he writes this, But when I know him as the gospel pictures him, and long for him as the best friend that my heart can choose, then it is well. He's saying when I see the gospel in its fullness, and I think about how Jesus came to be a friend of sinners, then it is well. Love soon follows. No friend can do as much for us as he has. Luther said, I forget father and mother and love him. Then I have a strong confidence in him. But if one simply fears him, then that one falls back on his good works and makes no recognition of Christ as mediator, thinking to run into the presence of God without him. Luther is saying, if you just fear him, then you'll always be afraid of him, and you'll try to approach him by doing more good works, more good things. And that's like trying to enter into the presence of God without Christ, 
You can never get to God without Christ. You can never please God without Christ. Your best works are but filthy rags. Don't ever run into the presence of God without Christ. So Luther's saying you've got to see him as more than just a judge, but as a friend of sinners. And to see that is what this text is saying, that God's primary purpose of sending his son into the world was that the world might be saved through him. This does not mean that every individual in the world would be saved, as that would be universalism. This means that people out of the world, like you and like me, will be saved by Christ. We will be saved. Every person who believes in him will come to Christ. Now, some would say that God wanted to save every individual in the world, and that's expressed. Turn here with me, if you will, by 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. We're kind of getting into a little bit of a, of a better understanding of what does it mean that the world might be saved through him. Did God ultimately want the whole world to be saved? So let's examine 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Maybe you've heard this verse before where it says, "...who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth." So how are we to understand that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, this verse is in the context of praying for all types of people. In fact, if you look back up at Second Tim, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we read here how uh, basically Paul is commanding Timothy to pray for all kinds of people, whether they're people in authority or not. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and for all who are in high positions. By the way, this is the reason why I, why I pray, why I pray for our president every Sunday. We're commanded by God to pray for our king, King Trump. All right, President Trump, all right? President Trump, we're commanded to pray for those that are in leadership over us, right? We pray for all people. It doesn't matter if you like them or you don't like them, if you voted for them or not. We are called to pray for our leaders. And in that vein, in that idea that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, verse 2, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How are we to understand this verse? I think I would just point out that there's a difference between God's desire and God's decree. There's a difference between the benevolent love of God, such as we've been talking about in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Yes, he loves the world. Yes, in one sense, he desires that the world be saved. But he did not decree or determine to save every individual in the world. He decreed and determined that the effectual call of the gospel and the atoning work of Christ would save the elect. They would save those who are chosen by God from eternity past. And so I don't believe that 1 Timothy 2, 4 is teaching that God to his nth degree, wants everybody to be saved. But in a general sense, he desires people to be saved, but he did not decree that all men be saved. Turn with me to another verse that's similar to this, 2 Peter chapter 3. So turn over to the right. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we see another verse that emphasizes the difference here between God's desire and God's decree. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise is some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so what does this verse mean? So many times, if you're coming 
at this from maybe a free will Arminian perspective. You would come quickly to this verse and say, well, see there, God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to reach repentance. And I would say yes and no to that. And the reason I say yes and no is that we've got to understand this also in its context. And part of what's going on here is if you look at who he's writing to, look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We know First and Second Peter are written by the same author, Peter, to the same audience. Just two letters. 1 Peter 1, 1. Let's see who it is that he's writing to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are, what? Does he say, I'm writing to the world? 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect. He's writing specifically to elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who's Peter writing to? Those that God determined to save before the foundation of the world that they would be in Christ. He's writing to the elect. 2 Peter 1.1, just to see the context of this specific letter. 2 Peter 1.1, who's Peter writing to? Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, he's not writing to the world at large. He's writing to those who have obtained the faith. The only way to obtain the faith is by the righteousness of God and through Jesus Christ. And so we've got to understand here that really the emphasis of 2 Peter 3.9, it's not on the supporting verbs of wishing and reach at the end of the verse. The main verbs are actually the words slow and patient. The, the main emphasis of 2 Peter 3.9 is that God should wipe you out right now. But he doesn't because he's patient. He's slow. His judgment is coming, but it's slow to get there because every day that the sun rises on our country and on your life is another day that God's waiting for you to repent. It's another day that he's calling you out of darkness into light and that we should be thankful that we serve a patient God who loves us and who calls us into a relationship. And while that's true, it doesn't necessarily mean, when we go back now to John 3, 17, when it says, in order that the world may be saved through him, it doesn't necessarily mean that God ultimately has decreed that every individual in the world be saved. And so we understand here that the truth is that God did send his son into the world to save, but not every individual will be saved because there's the reality and this is our next major heading here, number two in your outline, there is the reality of condemnation. There is the reality of condemnation. Verse 18, your next blank here in the outline again says, believers are not condemned. Condemnation is a reality, but it's not for believers. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you haven't noticed, verse 18 shifts to legal language, the language of the courtroom, the language of judgment. The judge says either condemned or uncondemned, and he hits his gavel on the desk, and it's done. Right? You are either condemned or you're not condemned. And so Jesus has moved from the language of life and death to the language of guilty and not guilty. And the difference between condemnation and salvation is the grace of God. The difference between condemnation and salvation is belief. And the difference between judgment and mercy is belief. The difference between heaven and hell is belief. And that's why in verse 18 he says, whoever believes, common throughout the gospel of John. In fact, in John 3, 15, whoever believes, 
John 3.16, whoever believes, John 3.18, whoever believes, Jesus says it 11 times in the gospel, whoever believes. And so in one sense, we're saying God has a select chosen people that he's determined before the foundation of the world. We know that to be true because it's taught clearly in Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. But in another sense, he says to all people everywhere, repent and whoever comes, I will by no means cast out. If you come to the Father, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so I call you to come this day I call you on this day that you come out of the darkness and you come out of the light and you remove yourself from the condemnation of your sin and you come to Christ. Whoever believes, whoever will come, all that the Father gives me will come and I will never cast out. But the truth is you can't. You can't come on your own. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You cannot come in your own power. You cannot come in your own way. God must draw you to himself. It's got to be a work of God. It starts with God and it ends with God. And all you can do is just say, God, save me. I can't do it on my own. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. But what can you do? You must be drawn by God. All you can do is the dying. God does the drawing. All you can do is the stinking. God does the saving. All you can do is the rebelling. God does the regenerating. All you can do is the ruining. God does the resurrecting. You can live your life as long as you want and try to somehow reach God on your own to avoid condemnation, but you can't do it unless God draws you to himself. And if he draws you to himself, then you become one of the whosoever believes and you will receive eternal life. If he's calling you and if he's drawing you, you will not be able to resist. You will be given the gift of belief and faith. In fact, this word in verse 18, whoever believes, the word believe there in the original language is the word pistuo, which is the word for faith. It could be translated whoever has faith, whoever believes. And you may uh, know that this is an active belief. It's not a passive mental awareness, but it's an active wholehearted trust. This is the kind of belief that exercises God-given faith. And the Reformers taught that this kind of believing faith had to have three components to be genuine saving faith. Faith has a threefold distinction of notia, Ascensus and fiducia. That's Latin for knowledge, assent, and trust. It's the standard Reformation definition of faith. In English, it goes like this. You must have knowledge, which is the factual assertions of the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus was incarnated, that he was born to the Virgin Mary, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross, that he was raised from the dead. You must have the knowledge of these truths. Second, Assent, which means that not only do you have the knowledge, but you are agreeing to the factual assertions that they are true and real. So it takes you one step further, but you're still not there yet. In fact, let me just say that these first two alone are not saving faith. This is what the reformers would call historical faith. You believe in the historical Jesus, but you have not yet committed your life to him. This is like the kind of faith that the demons have, and they shudder. But it's only saving faith if the third element of trust, 
fiduciary, the idea of trust, the reliance on Christ and his mercy for our righteousness before God. It is trust that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And until you get to that point where you say, I got nothing. There's no way I can ever get, not only do I believe the facts, I depend upon him. I trust in him. I commit my life to him. I give my soul to him. I will go with him until I die. Nothing will ever shake me from my commitment to him that if he draws you to him and he brings you in, you will have these three elements of saving faith. You must get the gospel right for you cannot believe in a false gospel. You must assent that it's true and it's true for you and you must trust and commit your life. This is what it means to truly believe. It's not some passive statement here where he's just like, well, whoever believes, yeah, I believe. I mean, you can walk around in our culture. Do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe in Christ? Yeah, I, well, I believe in Jesus. But until you really understand what somebody means by using those words, they may or may not have saving faith. Only God can provide this kind of faith. Only God can provide this kind of saving belief. And so believers, those who are true believers, are not condemned. But the second part of verse 18, your next blank here says, but unbelievers are condemned already. It's a fact. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Because he has not received the monogenes, God's only Son that he sent into this world. And so for that reason, unbelievers are already condemned. We were not born neutral. We were born as sinners with a sinful nature. And as we grow up in this world, we demonstrate that sinful nature by our struggle with sin on a daily basis. And before you were a Christian, you were dominated by your sin and you liked it. All you did was sin all day long, every day, and you did it in your own time, by your own will, because that's all you knew. And so to Christ, you were dead because you were stuck in your trespasses and your sins. You were sinning because you were a sinner. That's what Romans 3.10 says. There is none righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And because we were not righteous in our own right, because we have fallen from perfection, we must be willing to accept the consequence, which is death, or eternal separation of God coming in the form of condemnation. This is what John says later in the chapter. We're there in chapter 3, verse 18. Skip down to verse 36 where he writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That phrase, the wrath of God remains on him, means that God's wrath is already there. Jesus didn't have to come into the world to set God's wrath against sinners. God's wrath was already there. And that's why it says in 3.18 that unbelievers are condemned already. Why are unbelievers condemned already? Because God's wrath is already there. It was there before you were born. It was there when you were conceived. It was there through your stage as a baby and as a toddler and certainly as a teenager. We need God. We need to believe, but we can't do it. It's life or death, and life only comes from God, who has been given the authority to grant life through Jesus Christ, and he's also been given the authority for Jesus to execute judgment. If you're saved, you obey God's word, demonstrated by a life of obedience and doing good, 
If the habit of your life is doing evil, then you have never received eternal life and you will be judged. And that's what verse 18 is saying. If you're obeying him and walking with him, you're not condemned if you're a believer. But if you do not believe, you're condemned already because of the fact that you did not believe in the name that would just be in the person of Jesus Christ, God's only son. Listen to how Jesus says it this way in John 12, John 12, 47 and 48, more cross-references to kind of help us understand what we're learning this morning. But Jesus says this, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So the question will be asked, what? You didn't come to judge him? Then who's judging him? Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's like, look, I'm coming to the world to save the world, not to condemn sinners. And if you're a sinner, you're condemned by the word that has already been spoken against you. The character of God has already set against you, and you will be judged on that last day. If you reject him, there's no way out. And you're not necessarily judged by Jesus who came to save so much as you're judged by the righteousness of God in the word that was spoken in Christ, and you will be judged. Now, J.I. Packer, in his well-known book, Knowing God, weighs in on this whole sermon by saying this, quote, God's wrath in the Bible is something which people choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which a person himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. So Packer saying that God shines a light, a bright light. It's the light of Christ. And yet sinners retreat into the darkness and they're choosing in that sense to be judged by God. Again, Packer writes, quote, the decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass upon themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them and through Jesus Christ. In the last analysis, all that God does subsequently in judicial action toward the unbeliever, whether in this life or beyond it, is to show him and lead him into the full implications of the choice he has made. In other words, if you choose to believe... It's only because God's drawn you and you're his. If you choose to reject him, there's no hope by, for you. And by the way, you've made that decision to your own liking, consistent with your own sinful nature. And so we've seen the reason why Jesus was sent into the world. It was to save the lost. And we've also seen the reality of condemnation for unrepentant sinners. And last, our third major heading here is I want you to see this, the right approach to the light the right approach to the light. Your next blank, do not love the darkness. Do not love the darkness. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Here we're commanded as believers, do not love the darkness. Why? Because the light has come. The light has come into the world. What is the light? Or maybe we could say, who is the light? This light that has come into the world is Jesus Christ. John 1, 4, in him was life, 
and this life was the light of men. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light is Jesus Christ, and the problem is not with him. The problem is not with the light. The problem is with the darkness. The problem is not that the light is not bright enough. The problem is, is that people love the darkness. The problem is, is that if given a choice between good and bad, right and wrong, sinful nature will always choose sin. Just the way it happens. You will always choose sin every time because you love, and I love, apart from Christ and apart from his sovereign grace in our hearts, we love the darkness, which is why God commands us in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you know why God commands us not to love the world? Why, why does he say, don't, don't love money and don't love physical intimacy outside of marriage and don't love yourself? Why does he say that when it comes so natural to us why does he say, don't love the world? Because the world can't save you. The world can't satisfy you. The world is a bad rap. It lies to your face and takes you down. Sin is from the devil, right? The idea is that you can't love the world because the, love of the world can't save you. The world doesn't love you. The world uses you and abuses you and leaves you high and dry. And so God is only commanding us not to love the world because he knows the world will wreck your life. So we must instead, instead of loving the world, the second blank here says, do not hate the light. So we're commanded in verse 21, don't love the world. But in verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 19, do not love the world. In verse 20, do not hate the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. If we are stuck in habitual sin, then pretty soon we begin to hate the light. We don't like the light. We run from the light. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Georgia, we had these pests in our homes called cockroaches. I haven't seen any in California. I'm sure they're somewhere in somebody's house. But in the house I had growing up, it was a common problem, I think, because of the humidity. And uh, I just remember many times I'd get up, you know, and I'd, 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 it'd be dark, it'd be night, and you go into a room, maybe you're going into the kitchen to get a snack late at night, and you turn on the light, and there on the floor, right there in the middle of the kitchen floor, could be one, two, or three roaches, and they're disgusting. And as soon as you turn on the light, they all start fighting and running and finding a corner and you're trying to catch them, you know, because you grab a paper towel and you jump on the floor. I'm going to squash these things. So they're just nasty, right? But they just, they just run to the darkness. They run to the corner. They go under the door. They hide. They hate the light. And in so many ways, that's how you and I are at times. We're like cockroaches running from the light. We love our darkness. We don't want it exposed. We don't want the light. To, that light is bright. That's a bright light. I don't like, I like my life like it is. I like using my money how I'm using my money. I like my relationship where it is and all of its sensuality. I like where I am. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. I mean, how common is that? It's not just toddlers and teenagers. It's full-blown adults. I want to live my life how I want to live my life, and who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? Listen, it's the light of Christ. The light is Jesus. If you say you hate the light and you love darkness, you're saying, I hate Christ. I hate his word. I hate his law. 
I hate his rules. I hate everything he says. And if you're like that this morning, then you don't know Christ. Because when Christ, the light of the world, begins to shine on a person's life, it must either break him in two or lead him into further darkness. It will either break you and bring you to repentant faith or it will drive you farther into the darkness. And so my question would be this morning is, what does God's light do to you? How do you respond? Because if you respond like a cockroach and you run for darkness and you run for cover and you're hiding your sin and you're not repenting, then it could be you don't know Christ. But if you're like Isaiah who says, woe is me for I am undone. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. And if you have that mindset, then you see that God's working in you and he's drawing you and he's ridding you and putting off these sinful desires that that you're not loving the darkness and hating the light. And finally, the right response should be this, come to the light. Your last blank there, do come to the light. This is what God calls of us. Again, verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That if you're a Christian today, every time you acknowledge the truth, you're coming closer to the light. Every time that you do what is true and right and good and holy, you're coming to the light. The only way you can come to know the truth and to walk in it is to come to Christ. You must be born again is really the theme of John 3. You must be. You can never make it on your own. You must be born again. It's impossible on your own effort and your own strength. But if you come, if you come to Christ... Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And as you have eternal life, you begin to long for the truth and to know the truth and to long for the light. You like hard preaching because it steps on your toes. And when you're sitting under hard preaching, you're like, bring it on, brother. Come on, don't stop. Bring it on. If you don't like hard preaching, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want him to talk about sin. Not today. You know, I need an encouraging word. Just tell me something nice about myself that I don't already know about myself. Right? It's like we, we've got to get to the point where we're like, bring it. I need to be convicted. I need to have my heart hit with the hammer of God's word to break it into pieces. He's like a consuming fire. That's what we need in our hearts and our lives. And really, the end of verse 21 there just reminds me a lot where it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Reminds me a lot of Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us by grace through faith. And then 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand prepared that we should walk in them. And I kind of take that as similar to when it says that these works have been carried out in God. It's only in Christ that you can do good works. There are no good works apart from Christ. So all the cultures doing all the nice things in the world are not true good works if they're not carried out in the God of the Bible. In fact, we're in a major crisis in our culture about what good works are and what good works are not. What the church used to be involved in, which would be considered good works, now by the culture is condemned as not being good works, but instead being hateful words said to our society. If a Christian walks in and says, I will not perform an abortion, that's no longer considered a good work. Because by the medical board in Canada, they're saying that they won't even allow a physician to go to med school if he says he won't do an abortion. Why? Because they say he's not doing good works. Good works are doing sin, according to our culture. But according to Christ, good works can only be done in God. 
It's only in God that you and I could do anything that would be consistent with saving faith. I appreciate what John Piper writes about this whole passage. Uh, just kind of a couple summary thoughts. He says this about this whole idea. Are we, did Jesus come to condemn? Did Jesus come to save? How does that work out? Here's what he writes. Quote, unbelief is our fault. And belief is God's gift. Which means that if we do not come to Christ, but instead perish, we magnify God's justice. And if we do come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify his grace. You see the difference there? If you continue in your unbelief, you are magnifying the justice of God. Justice will be served. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of your sin is death. God is a good judge. He will condemn every unrepentant sinner. So you magnify his justice. But if you come to the light and you come to Christ, he will not cast you out. He will save you. And he will forgive you. And in that sense, God's grace is magnified. And so let me ask you, which one are you magnifying today in your life? Are you magnifying God's justice, which leads to judgment, or God's grace, which leads to eternal life? How do you approach the Father? How do you see the purpose of the Father sending Jesus into the world? Was it to condemn the world or to save the world. This past week, as I was preparing the sermon, I read a moving story about a young man who had quarreled with his father and left home. He continued to keep in touch with his mother and wanted very badly to come home for Christmas, but he was afraid of his father and that his father would not allow him in the house. His mother wrote to him and urged him to come home, but he did not feel he could until he knew his father had forgiven him. Finally, there was no time for any more letters. His mother wrote and said she would talk with the father, and if he had forgiven him, she would tie a white rag on the tree, which grew right alongside the railroad tracks near their home, which he could see before the train reached the station, and if there was no rag, it might be better if he just went on. So the young man started home. As the train drew near his home, he was so nervous, he said to his friend, who was traveling with him, I, I can't bear to look. Sit in my place and look out the window and I'll tell you what the tree looks like and you tell me whether or not there's a white rag on that branch. So his friend changed places with him and he looked out the window and after a bit, the friend said, oh yes, I see the tree. The son asked, is there a white rag tied to the branch? For a moment, the friend did not say anything. Then he turned and in a very gentle voice said, there is a white rag tied to every limb of that tree. What a beautiful picture, the love of God that he has for sinners like you and me. There is a white rag tied to every law of God which was fulfilled by Christ. You can't fulfill it perfectly. Christ did and because of Christ's sacrifice for you, he invites you home. This morning, we need to hear Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but we also need to hear this sermon from John reminding us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through 
Christ, I call you this morning to come out of your darkness and to come home to the love of God. I call you today, no matter what your past is, no matter what your background is, to come out of darkness into light. I call you today to come to Christ, to believe in him, to love him and to follow him, to commit your life to him and to realize that maybe these last couple of take-home points would give us more food for thought. Number one, God sent his son to save you from your sins and to give you eternal life. If you're a little bit more like Luther before he was saved and you fear God and you're afraid of him, but you haven't seen the full gospel that the reason that he sent his son was not to condemn you, but to love you and to bring you into the kingdom, then this morning you need to hear that message of God loves sinners, that he loves you and he calls you to himself. This morning, come. Don't fear him any longer. Come and you will be forgiven. Come and he will give you a new nature. Come and he will save you from your sin. God sent his son to save. Number two, the cross was deeply costly for God. Infinitely beneficial to us and absolutely free. You come today by free grace. You come by a gift offered to you through Christ. You come not on your own merit. You come not on your own good works or your own effort. You come today through the cross, which costs God the death of his son. But for you and I this morning, there's a freedom in coming to this cross. Last, walk in the light and know that your good works are only accomplished by God's strength. I call you today to walk in the light and to know that the works that you do as you obey Christ day in and day out are only possible if they've been carried out in God. Don't look at your good works as a justification for your sin. Look at your good works as an evidence of the love of the Father and you reciprocating that love by obeying him and honoring him with your life. God sent Jesus to save. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder of this text of Scripture, so many deep and wonderful things for us to consider. God, today I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the love of God. Pray that we would first and foremost see the primary purpose of God sending Jesus into the world to save sinners. God, if we've got that switched in our mind, switch it back. God, switch it back that we see you first as a lover and second as a judge. That we see you first as one who sent your son because of your love for the world and second as a judge. Oh, may we fear you as judge, Lord. But I pray that we would see your love for lost and dying sinners. And it would be the light of Christ when shone into our hearts. Would cause us to run from the darkness, to confess our sins, to believe in you, to trust you with our lives, and to walk in obedience all of our days. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.